my goal in sponsoring this legislation is not to generate new arrests, but to reduce the number of arrests for the felony charge of assaulting a firefighter. Seattle City Council member Lisa Herbold there talking about a new ordinance the council is passing this week, trying to protect firefighters getting assaulted by bystanders while in the line of duty. What impacts will this law have? Plus, a major budget decision this week for Seattle Public Schools, SPS, and other districts across the state struggling with fewer students and thus fewer state dollars in the wake of the pandemic. And it may no no longer be your right to take that right. On a red line in downtown Seattle, the city expanding a ban on these turns and a few more intersections. What does that mean for our transportation system? Well, we're covering all this and more this week on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I'm a host on Seattle Channel, and the views expressed here are mine. And joining me is my co-host, David Croman, reporter for the Seattle Times. And David, I got to say, I saw some intrepid reporting from you last week on Twitter, taking your bike through a newly activated Amazon campus downtown. What did it look like down there? Yeah, it was cool. It was, um, I think this was like day two or three of return to the office for them. And yeah, it felt like 2019. It was, you know, long, long lines of food trucks and, um, right. Yeah, it was the busiest I think I've seen down any part of downtown for, you know, basically three years now. It was, um, yeah. you know, it was kind of neat. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Well, thank you, David, for joining me. And thanks to our background noise sponsor, City Grind Espresso on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks also to our show patrons. The Seattle News Views and Brews sticker campaign is happening, folks. We need your help. Please join us as a supporter of the show. You can get your very own decal for just $5 a month, that pledge there. We'd like to feature our sticker action photos on the show, too. Angie, thank you for sending in this photo, and thank you for supporting the show. We're stuck on you too, Angie. Appreciate the help. Thanks finally to Converge Media. We partner with Converge to air the video version of this podcast. Check it out on Converge's YouTube channel, Wednesday nights at 7. Off we go with right here, right now. So the city council this week will pass a measure meant to protect firefighters responding to emergencies. So firefighters would be included in the city's obstruction ordinance. They're not in that ordinance right now. So basically it would be a crime to physically interfere with firefighters or other fire department employees as they try to provide aid. And David, I just think this really speaks to the changing nature of emergency calls in years past. Who would try to stop a firefighter from fighting a fire or helping a medical patient? It always seemed to me when I was covering breaking news stories like this that firefighters were somehow separate from that action. But now these stories we're hearing of rocks being thrown, punches, death threats, they're right in that mix. And it sounds like they really need some help. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's um, just the nature in some ways of what fire departments have become. Uh, they're really not. I mean, even the name fire department is becoming more and more of a misnomer. They, they just don't fight that many fires anymore because, I mean, buildings are, uh, you know, any new building is just much more fire safe. And it just these structures are not catching fire like they used to. What they are doing a lot more, though, is responding, you know, in the same way that police do. It, a lot of their job is now responding to people in mental health crises, um, overdoses and you know, some of the kind of stickiest, most challenging situations that our city's dealing with that, especially for the departments down in, you know, Pioneer Square. And we've seen this with the addition of the the Medic One um, team, which is kind of specifically created to respond to kind of low acuity, but um, perhaps societally challenging uh, calls. But I think, you know, with with that kind of shift in emphasis over the years, um, it does mean that they're dealing, they're, they're probably in some kind of unpredictable situations, especially with people who, um, you know, might 
might need a little extra help and, and themselves might not always act predictably. Right. And, th- and that's another piece of this, too. The the ordinance will allow firefighters will, to establish this safe area around where they're working so they can do their job. And this final piece here, the council is asking the Seattle Police Department to report on how this legislation will end up being enforced over this next year. And that's that's an interesting piece to this for me, David, because are more arrests going to come out of this because the challenging people that you're talking about here could end up being the arrested people here could being i mean we're talking about some very vulnerable people vulnerable people here who are involved with this and i know Councilmember herbold is not looking for more arrests but i just wonder how police are going to approach this new ordinance yeah um i I don't know i mean it's there's there's theory and practice right now um there's a lot of things that are theoretically illegal but um it just for a number of reasons because of de-emphasis um from the top uh, around some low-level crimes to, I mean, probably more pressing. Just there's not enough. There's not that many police on the on the streets now, so they they kind of look to other. You know, you know, there's certain things that they just say that they're not going to do anymore because they don't have the resources for it. You know, um, I guess this is, reminds me a little bit of the Blake debate around uh, you know criminal recriminalizing drug possession. It's it feels in some ways more of the the talking and the symbolic side that's supposed to kind of carry some weight here because um, in, in both cases, uh, you know, I don't imagine huge increase in arrests. Right. Um, but you know what it could do, um, I suppose is give police some sort of level of confidence to maybe, you know, handcuff somebody or whatever, if they are causing a problem and even if they don't book them or take them to jail, they can move them and, you know, kind of set them aside for a second, you know? So, um, a, a little bit of, um, yeah, I mean, maybe a little extra, a little extra oomph, um, but, uh, you know, I don't foresee a situation when, when huge numbers of people are being trucked off to jail for this. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but just, you're very right, a changing nature of how the city responds to emergencies and dealing with some very uh, deep social issues there. So, David, thank you for breaking down that part. I wanted to move on to a uh, a labor issue here, a new ordinance in committee this week for the council, protecting app-based workers who are dealing with being deactivated from the app they're working for. So this is part of a suite of bills the council has been working on over the past couple years here to make sure the growing number of gig workers in Seattle does have protection, like a minimum wage last year, sick and safe, sick and safe leave this year. And now we're talking about deactivation. So an example of this, let's say you're a gig worker and you didn't take that job that you saw on the app that was close by you. The council's studies show you can be deactivated from the app without much explanation or due process. And I just, I wondered about this, David, because we saw the app-based companies really pushing back last year when the minimum wage measure went into effect, but that passed, and then sick and safe leave passed this year, first city in the country to do it right here in Seattle. It seems like the council's on a bit of a roll with this legislation, and I just wonder where or how app-based companies are going to push back this time. What do you think about this, this whole deactivation thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, at state level, there there was some, um, yeah, dispute resolution processes that were put into place um, for this sort of thing. But, I mean, the app-based companies sort of blanket deny that there's any sort of uh, retaliatory or um, punishing use mm-hmm. of deactivations. They, I don't, I don't think we're ever going to hear them say anything different. They're just um, pretty well set to that line. You know, on the other hand, yeah. the drivers say... That, that that this happens to them all the time, um, and so yeah, I, I think I think so far the the approach that has sort of uh, call, you know satisfied to a certain extent both sides are these dispute resolution uh, 
processes. Um, you know, we haven't had a good look at how the state one is going to work or if it's going to work at all. Not yet. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's it, well, like with all things um, with Uber and Lyft, it's just super hard to gauge scale on, on these issues. You know, we hear anecdotes all the time you know, on deactivations or even pay, frankly, um, working conditions and things like that, um, that the companies tend to just sort of dispute. But it's hard to check that because they're really tight with their data. They don't like to uh, they will go to court. They're very litigious when it comes to re- re- releasing any kind of data under public records requests. So, um, you know, it's, it's a little hard to measure the scope of the problem, but, um, yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, no, it, it, there's a lot going on with this one. And you bring up an interesting point there in terms of the data that these companies keep and most often are not releasing because there's another part of this legislation, the council really calling out the app-based companies and their efforts to use criminal background checks as a way to validate their workers. The company's talking about public safety, but the council saying, well, you know, in some cases here, we don't know really where you're checking. Some of these, sometimes these these indications are wrong and things of this nature. What are your criteria? I, I just think when it comes to public safety, at least, it's a little bit of an interesting balance that the council is trying to wade through here. I think on the company's behalf, they certainly don't want to get customers in, into any issues here with someone who might have criminal background. But at the same time, that person who is the app-based worker has deserved a due process here. I, I, I thought this was interesting, especially with that uh, kind of public safety angle to it, David. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. And it is a concern. I mean, you hear occasionally, it doesn't happen very often, but you hear occasionally right. pretty gruesome stories right. of, um, you know, things that drivers do. I mean, sexual assaults or, or you know, um, violence. But but again, it, I don't, it, it's pretty rare. Um at the same time, you know, if, if you're a passenger, you want to have some level of confidence that the person, you know, people people take these rides solo all the time. Uh, you want to have some confidence that the person who is driving the car is uh, doing what they are promising to do. I, I think the the uh, rating system and all that is some level of buffer. You know, you, it's not like you can get away with uh, doing something criminal over and over and over, but you know, yeah, uh, right. you would hope, I, I right. think, I think, yeah, I mean, balancing, um, I, I would say most people want to have some level of confidence that, uh, the people they are riding with are not, uh, murderers or whatever it might be. But <laughs> at the same time, you know, if it's yeah. a shop, if it's a shoplifting charge or whatever it might be, you don't want to bar those people from ever working again anywhere. So yeah, you're right. It's a balance. Yeah, yeah, I know the council is going to be taking a close look at this, and we'll see where this unfolds. This is in committee right now, but definitely something the council wants to take care of before this summer. All right, well, up next here, a big challenge for Seattle and other school districts around our state with a budget shortfall staring them right in the face. A major decision for Seattle Public Schools this week about staff reductions and possible school closures, too. Well, we're going to talk about it on Now Hear This. Well, on Wednesday of this week, the Seattle Public School District will be finishing up a vote on its budget, which does not look so great for next year, a $131 million deficit. Most of that is due to declining enrollment that really hasn't rebounded after the COVID years, and fewer kids means fewer dollars from the state. Plus, there are issues with special education, too, that are very important to point out. Seattle Council PTSA President Samantha Fogg was talking up House Bill 1305 in Olympia just a few months ago to help kids with disabilities, too. We need to center the outcomes for students and honor their civil rights. You've heard a lot about special education this session, and this bill is about accountability. We have too many children who should be getting special education, but who are not being served. David, a lot going on here. I want to look big picture to start. Seattle's talking about laying off 90 central staff next fall 
and using up its rainy day funds, but leaving open the possibility of closing schools in the fall of 2024. And I mentioned that issue of students leaving the school system during COVID and not coming back. It just has really turned into a double whammy, it seems like, for our school system that as federal COVID dollars run out, the funding mechanism that schools have relied on, enrollment numbers really aren't helping either. What do you see going on here? Yeah, this is a huge, I mean, this is a huge story and it's not going to go any away. And it's not just Seattle Public Schools, as you mentioned. Um, Bellevue, I think the east side, well, maybe beyond Bellevue, but the east side, it seems like was kind of where they first we first started hearing them talk about closing schools. And that's now um, come over mm-hmm. to Seattle, that conversation. Well, be, well, these side, they actually are, yeah. they have schools that they're planning to close. Uh, yeah, two schools in Bellevue. You got it. Mm-hmm. Right. Seattle is not there yet, but um, these are really big numbers. Um, and and it's not like, you, you know, I don't know that anyone has any confidence that, that the missing, the students have disappeared are going to come back necessarily. They might, um, but it's just, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's one of those things, I think that you could come up with a list of things that, um, even as COVID sort of settles down a little bit and there's some level of normalcy, th- this just feels like one of those things where there's just so many question marks around what what the next five to 10 years look like. And, you know, if the students don't come back, then, um, you know, really the options are you find ways to downsize, which is what the conversation is now, or the state legislature um, puts more money into the schools. I think a lot of people would prefer the latter, um, you know, who see public schools as a, as a public good, uh, not a public business is not something that necessarily should be um, mm-hmm. funding itself or whatever, but um, y- you know, this yeah. Um, yeah. it's a, it's a real challenge. And uh, you know, I feel, I feel for the parents and students right now who are sort of facing this and, and the administrators who uh, are, are looking at pretty massive shortfalls. These are big numbers. Impossible, impossible discussions is, is what I've heard from so many different advocates. I'm actually working on a story on this this week on Seattle Channel. Please check it out, folks. A lot of different voices involved here. You may have seen the headlines about Washington Middle School in the Central District. Looks like its beloved jazz program is probably going to end up getting cut here with what the uh, with what that school is talking about here, with what the district is going through with the budget shortfalls. But I, I should point out here, David, lawmakers actually pumped in about $3 billion new money into our schools this session. A lot of critics are saying with inflation, that didn't go as far as you think. And they also made not a full payment, but what they called a down payment on special education, which the state is supposed to provide. But now it's schools with special levy dollars covering much of that. And I guess I'm looking at this, and I know you've covered these different school issues before with the McCleary decision and what the state tried to do in 2018 with that funding package there. Is it that our schools need a different method of funding? It just seems like this continuing problem that I, I don't know what's going to rebound here in the next couple of years. As you mentioned here, it, this whole idea that McCleary was going to be a fix for this it just really hasn't played out. Yeah, well, I mean, McCleary, um, McCleary, it seems like it, it, it went a certain certain distance as far as you know, saying uh, the, the state has a basic obligation to fund schools at a certain level. But what it didn't do and what some people wanted it to do was totally toss out the model of levies of funding, funding schools through local property tax levies, which, um, you know, are, are kind of a, it's a, you know, can of worms because then you've got these schools like, you know, Mercer Island or Bainbridge Island or whatever it might be that has a population a wealthy population that's sort of endlessly willing to, uh, you know, tax themselves more to fund their schools. And so you've got these nice fancy schools, but then, you know, you just saw Kent uh, turn down, uh, you know, almost half a billion dollar 
levy recently. And so that kind of creates this patchwork of funding across the state. There, there is a lawsuit. I don't know what the current uh, status of that. I know that there was a lawsuit percolating to declare that unconstitutional. I haven't been tracking that at all. But, um, you know, I think just the, you know, on a broad level, I think there are a lot of people who would like to see the total uh, funding model for public schools overhauled. Yeah, no, and this special education, I think, is is where you might see some legal action, too, because this is something the state is definitely supposed to provide, and they basically provided about half of the funding that was needed there. So you have some kids with special needs. It's supposed to be the state's responsibility, and then it falls to these local districts here. I, I guess it's just it just kind of turns into this, I keep coming back to this impossible decision phrase for our schools. And what they're talking about is, again, the staff reduction here in Seattle over the course of this summer and fall and then the potential for school closures next year. I, I, do you have any idea that next year it's going to be better somehow, that that, uh, that that forecast is going to be better? Because everything I've seen is these numbers of students returning to school, just it, it's not going up. It, it seems to be declining. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I mean, I, you know, again, it's um, I, there are a lot of people who track this closely. I have not seen any indication that there's yeah. some guarantee that, that these students are are coming back. I mean, cause it, you know, it's sort of, it, it really reminds me of commuting, you know, it, it's like transit riders and you know, transportation reporter. I'm going to bring it back to transportation, of course, but you know, uh, course, you, get yes, in, right? you get in the habit of riding a bus or whatever, but the second you get out of that habit, you, you know, that's a lot of work to convince people to get back on the bus. Cause you know, they start driving and they think, Hey, this is actually faster and uh, it's easier to find parking. I think there's mm-hmm. probably a parallel to, schools, which is, um, you know, maybe people went to private school or homeschool or whatever it might be. Homeschool uh, is part of the next too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they decide, you know what, we kind of like this and we don't have, you know, I'm going to tell our friends about this and uh, you kind of set a new precedent, which is, is hard to undo, I would think. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that one. All right. I wanted to move on to another story here, David, a double dose of transportation news this week, folks. So the city is moving ahead on reducing a number of places downtown, the number of intersections downtown, where you can make a right turn on a red light. Looks like 40, 41 more intersections added to the mix, according to SDOT. David, you've reported on this, and I just wanted to follow up on this piece. What kind of impact is this honestly going to have on traffic safety? I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk, but having fewer cars rolling through intersections on red light where there's pedestrians potentially going across, I guess that sounds like a good thing too. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, if, if the goal is, you know, it, this isn't going to get the city to vision zero. Um, this isn't going to eliminate traffic deaths. It, it might not even eliminate that many. Um, you know, it, like pinning the number of deaths or even collisions on right turns on red is sort of difficult because it's usually the police department doing the coding or whatever it might be. And, and that shows up as failure to yield usually, not right turn on red and failure to yield and, you know, includes a lot of other things other than just red lights. Um, you know, what we do know that there are a lot of uh, conflict between cars and pedestrians and bikers on right turns and at intersections specifically, but those aren't necessarily red lights. Those could be crosswalks or stoplights or whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that this is, um, I don't know that this is going to make an enormous difference, but, you know, the, at the same time, it's, I, I think everybody has had the experience of, especially on busy traffic days in uh, downtown when frustrated drivers are getting backed up and they're making these kind of quick, aggressive right turns to try and sneak in. Um, th- they're usually looking to the left. They're not, uh, they're not looking in the 
crosswalk. And um, so it does it does create the opportunity for sure for a lot of conflict. You know, it'll got it. I, certainly, certainly, like a lot of changes to the transportation system, I'm sure it'll be monitored closely, um, and it'll be sort of a real life experiment that that isn't often uh, played out elsewhere. Right, and it really does sound like the city wants to try to expand this potentially on a citywide level, as in when new construction is happening, let's say there's work going on around a street or whatever else, it'll be evaluated to see, okay, let's put in a, a no right uh, no right on red situation in this in this new intersection we're working on. Can you talk about that? Because it's not just these 40 intersections we're talking about. This is something that could potentially expand citywide. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's going to be built in a little bit more to um, to, to the construction or, or updating of signalized intersections, sort of how, you know, if you have new construction now, you have to make everything ADA compliant or whatever it might be. Um, it's going to be sort of the same now with right on red, that if you make these updates, they have to ban rights on red. So, you know, how, how quickly that rolls out, it's unclear. It seems like it'll probably take a while. There are already a thousand intersections in the city. I don't know how often they're updating those or, or installing new ones. I don't know that it's that often, but I don't, I don't know that for sure. Um, yeah. But you know, I, th- I would suppose over over time, um, it would just slowly become more and more um, common. You know, I, I heard Greg Spots talking this morning on KUW, uh, and he, he sort of left open the idea. He didn't say that they would specifically take requests, but sort of left, you know, alluded to the fact that they, they have heard from some neighborhoods or people uh, near an intersection who have actually reached out to the department specifically to request a ride on red. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it could it could kind of start falling into the, that camp. I don't think they have a formal process for it yet, but where certain neighborhoods could file a request to have one, then maybe the department would do it. So that would be kind of a way that if the department did that, maybe maybe we, it would roll out a little faster. Yeah, and kind of a, I won't say it's a completely simple job to work on an intersection like that and change it for a no right on red, but relatively simple. It's not rebuilding an entire street, that's for sure. No. Just put a sign I, up. I, yeah, yeah, just put a sign up, basically. Uh, I did want to talk about one last piece here. I know everybody is for traffic safety or whatever else, but is there some pushback that you've heard? I'm thinking maybe the, the freight community or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the conflict, if any, is going to arise from this and this idea of no right turns on red. I don't, there hasn't been any, like, formalized pushback to it. Uh, the best sort of form of pushback, though, that we could look to is at the state level where they propose doing something pretty similar and it just didn't get anywhere. And and there wasn't any sort of formalized, there wasn't any like lobby necessarily against it. It's just the fact that uh, a lot of legislators, uh, I think hear from people in their districts who are scared that their commutes home are going to get a little longer. I, you know, unclear if that's true, there's not a ton of data to show exactly how much traffic would be slowed down, but people are used to doing it. People have been doing it for 64 years. Uh, That's just, it's a big change to ask of people. Uh, that that I think would would take a while to form a new habit. So I think it's just kind of inertia more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point about what was going on at the state level there. Thank you for that, David. All right, coming up, a pothole you could literally see through heading out of West Seattle. What's next for that confounded bridge? David's got the details on Transportation Talk. David, as a West Seattleite myself, I was dumbfounded last week when I think it was about four foot by five foot, a pothole that you could literally see through, opened up on the Highway 99 ramp leading out of West Seattle off the West Seattle Bridge. Crews ended up fixing this ahead of schedule. Good news there. But first, 
what the heck happened here? Some some thoughts about this. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, the funny thing is this this ramp had been inspected in late, you know, kind of mid twenty twenty two and had passed. It had gotten a fair rating, which. If you're talking about inspections and ratings of of the roads and bridges, fair is fair is the new good because <laughs> uh, there are plenty that are in poor <laughs> shape. Um, but you know the reality is this is a super heavily used um, ramp. A lot of traffic coming in and out of down, uh, West Seattle and and taking 99 to commute. You know a lot of freight takes this because you know shoots you onto the tunnel and then you can kind of bypass downtown and continue on your on your merry way with your truck. So it's a lot of heavy, heavy usage of this. And I think just the reality of old concrete is, you know, you do that long enough and something's going to open up Um, a a pothole, a different pothole had opened up on the same ramp last year, about a hundred feet away. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's good news. The, the department or the state was able to fix this and and cure it more quickly than expected. Um, And now they say they're going to, watch this ramp a little more closely than they had before. But, um, you know, their, their, their real point that they make is this is, a you know, a symptom of a larger illness, which is that, uh, the, the state has, is accruing $350 million in maintenance backlogs every year. And, um, this is an example of what happens when you've got that kind of backlog. Right. And amazing to me that as much as a big problem this seems like for West Seattle, et cetera, I think the state would say, well, guess what? We have much worse problems in other areas around the state, right? right? Yeah, right. I mean, despite the fact that this was closed for a few days and uh, they say they're going to monitor it, they still say, you know, it's not our top priority, though. We've got other bridges um, that are in much worse condition that we have to spend more time monitoring. Yikes. Yikes. Well, we need to wrap up here, David, and I got to point this out. Uh, the Mariners season continues to have its ups and downs. David and I are talking about this constantly, but a highlight you recently point out, just listening to Rick Riz saying the name of Eugenio Suarez. I, I don't know what it is, man. He, he loves saying that name, it seems like. He manages, he manages to find even more syllables in a very syllable-heavy name. <laughs> totally. It reminds me when I was a kid and listening to uh, Vince Gully uh, uh, for the Dodgers say Alejandro Pena. It always seemed like there were extra pieces that he would work in there. But, uh, well, you know what? Even if they are a, a little bit under 500 and having some some frustrating games, providing some offense, at least they've got Rizzo making it happen with Eugenio there. So, yeah, we shall see. We shall see. David, thank you as always. Always good stuff. And uh, go M's. We'll see what happens there. Thanks to everybody listening to Seattle News Views and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you might like to listen. Please do find Seattle News Views and Brews on Patreon and show your support as well. Thanks for watching on Converge Media, too. We'll see you next time. Seattle News Views and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2023.